I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you want to Um... <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. Dance. Come on, let's see you. No, it's in there. Trust yes, me. Ladies. Not that's that one. Oh, I like it. I like no. Nice. D- definitely not that one. Dance, ladies. Come on, oh. take a hey! Hey up, you pop crazy youngsters. And welcome to part Dance two everybody. of episode Go 56 of Chart that's Music. Good. I'm your host, Al Needham, and the party is starting to rev up. Sarah's currently ripping through my tape box looking for the Christmas 1983 Top of the Pops and uh, well, Taylor seems to have nested in the drinks cabinet but never mind, we'll get him out in a bit and you're here and that's all that matters so all that remains to be said is oh, oh, oh who the fuck's that now? Oh. Fucking hell, it's Neil Kulkarni Hello there Neil. boys Hello, Hello there Happy boys Happy New Year Hey. How are we? We're all good. All the better for seeing you. Oh, excellent, excellent. Well, I hope you don't mind me dropping round. No. no, come on in, sit down, get on the settee. We're thinking of watching an old episode of Top of the Pops. Yeah, yeah, why not? <laughs> so, Neil, just by the look of you, it looks like you've got a big bulging sack of pop and interesting things. Why don't you come and ram them into me stocking? <laughs> Hey, you know what? It's it, it's not been a bad Christmas at all. Excellent. Considering my day, you know, my Christmas day started with a big slug of Cointreau. Good um, lad. Yeah, well, left it out for Santa. Lightweight bastard didn't even touch it. Ugh. Or the mince pie, to be fair. Um, so I had to knock that back. And the day ended with a, a fairly equally sized slug of Jack Daniels. It went surprisingly well. Booze does help, doesn't it, at Christmas? It does. It's great. It really, really does. And um, I've got some pretty good presents as well. Oh. Including, not exactly pop and interesting, an air fryer, <gasps> which I believe is, <laughs> it's this year's posture corrector, I'm telling you. It's, it? uh, <laughs> it's, it's going to be the thing that's going to, uh, um, you know, it's going to enable me to lose my birthright as an Asian man and change <laughs> my body shape from the pot belly and skinny legs that all Asian men have <laughs> to something a little more svelte. I'm allowed to say that, by the way, it's not racist and it's Christmas. So, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good presents, nice booze. Um, I am kind of. What's falling the first thing that's went into the air fryer? I think it's got to be chips, hasn't it? It's yeah, got to be it has chips to be, going man. in there. I hope it's chips. It's oh, chips. I hope it's chips. I am kind of falling into that 
dad slash granddad thing of being the guy who's asleep on special occasions, usually ah. by about two in the afternoon. Um, but that's, you know, booze does make everything better at Christmas. I'm, I'm now looking at all my decorations because I've got two rooms full of Christmas tat, Ooh. wondering whether it would be too brutal to take them down already. But yeah, um, uh, I, I'm actually in the, I'm in the festive spirit this year. I've one normal room and I've one Christmas room. Yeah, yeah, maybe. So, Neil, Christmas 1983. Well, must be frosted with beautiful memories. Well, you know what I really remember? Because normally I can remember what presents I got and all this sort of stuff. What I remember is it's a really strange memory. But I remember staring at a luminescent clock for two hours <laughs> from four in the morning on Christmas Day through to, you know, of course, I didn't have a fucking phone to go on or a tablet or a laptop to go on. It's 1983. And I got up too early because I was in that in-between time. I mean, I was 11. Mm. So I was dead in between, kind of still getting really excited about yeah, Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but also a little bit of that adolescent disinterest that you affect mm. later on. So I woke up really early, like I always did, like at four a fucking clock or something. Yeah. Uh, whereas ordinarily, you know, perhaps when I was 10 or nine or whatever, I might have gone and bothered my parents to ask if I could open my presents. I just remorselessly <laughs> stared at this clock <laughs> until it turned into a time. So it's burned in my memory just that it was one of those <laughs> luminescent kind of bedside ones that look like it should go with the goblin teas mate Ooh, did it say west clocks on it it may yeah it may well have done and it was luminescent just watching that too, right it's, it's startling how many memories i have in my life of just trying to force time to pass quicker <laughs> it's weird because when i remember i was thinking the other day most of my memories of the 90s are actually of getting the train back from london to Cov. And knowing that it takes exactly 13 minutes to get from rugby to Coventry. Mm. And as soon as the, the wheels started rolling out of rugby, I'd start counting to 780. Um, <laughs> that's my memory of much of the night is and my memory of 83 christmas yeah I, I can't remember what i got i can't remember what i watched on telly i can't remember my parents were about um that day i just remember remorselessly staring at a clock trying to make time go faster it doesn't work of course no. it just makes it drag but ho hum yeah that's my main memory from that year beautiful Anyway, why don't you come and sit down for a bit and we'll get stuck into this. Oh, yes, please. All right, then, Pop Craze Youngsters. This is now time to go way back to Christmas Day of 1983. Always remember, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget they've been on top of the pops more than we have. First, an end-of-the-year reflection of Top of the Pops, 1983. (laughs) It's 2pm on Sunday, December the 25th, 1983, and as is the law of the time, the Christmas episode of Top of the Pops is about to commence but not before we get a flash of the 1983 BBC One ident, the last incarnation of the big snowflake, which has rotating fronds or whatever. (laughs) It's nice, isn't it? It's lovely. The BBC One ident, we used to get it about six o'clock on Christmas Eve, and that was was it Mm, then. When you saw that, Christmas was on, bitch. (laughs) 
Yeah, and no cutesy claymation animation or any of that shit. No. Thank God. I fucking hate it when they do it in November now, man. It ain't right. This is what pisses me off about Christmas. Everyone lumps into it too early. And by the time it comes, it's like, oh, this again. Yeah, yeah. Hence, it loses its specialness somewhat. It's all about the frenzy of Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve is the most volcanically exciting day of the year Mm. as a child. I'm not sure it is anymore, but Christ, I'm an old bastard. (laughs) So once again, chaps, Top of the Pops is stuck in the 2pm slot, which is the most awkward fucking time, isn't it? Yeah. We've mentioned this before. It's just evil putting it on at that time. It's that awful dead spot. In Christmas Day, where mm. there's that cold stillness and pale light outside and, like, mm. that eerie silence all over the estate, you know what I mean? All these crappy <laughs> house front Christmas decorations flashing on and off to no effect in the, in the bleak daylight, just wasting that precious electricity. And then like, there's, like, one car going past every three or four minutes, like, going somewhere that no one in the car wants to go. <laughs> And that's where the Christmas Top of the Pops would always sit. And it is a very unpop atmosphere, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I mean, but, but where could they schedule it? I mean, to be honest with you, on Christmas Day, I wouldn't want to wait until the evening for it. No. So, yeah, yeah perhaps a little bit earlier, midday, something like that. Yeah, well, they did that this year, didn't they? Mm. Yeah, it's just chucking it away, though, isn't it? Yeah, but it's... No one cares. Yeah, well, no one does care now, do they? So (laughs) they got the scheduling right just when it didn't matter anymore. (laughs) But, you know, it wasn't always on at 2pm. And I think it's time for a potted history of the Top of the Pops Christmas show. Okay. Come and sit by the fire and let the old man Mm. tell you a story. (laughs) <laughs> Unbelievably, there was no Christmas Day Top of the Pops in 1964, the year it came into being, but the episode on Thursday the 24th was expanded out to an hour and was a showcase for the biggest hits of the year, a format which remains to this day. It was also given a slot in that year's Christmas Night with the Stars, BBC One's annual showcase of its stars and sitcoms. The entirety of it was given over to the Baron Knights doing impressions of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. (laughs) The first proper Christmas Day Top of the Pops in 1965 went out at 10.35 in the evening, went on for an hour and a quarter and was repeated the next day at a quarter past noon for the benefit of the youth. In 1966, it was shamefully put back to Boxing Day, the only other time it was locked out of the Christmas Day schedule, but it was also the first time it was shown over two parts, both going out at 6.15pm. In 1967, it was slotted into the 2pm slot on Christmas Day, fucking up Christmas dinner arrangements right across the country. (laughs) The BBC, in a rare lapse of sense, brought the 1968 show forward to 1.35, followed by the black and white minstrel show, meaning it was the turn of racist nans to want their (laughs) dinner putting in the oven. From 1969 to 1971, Christmas Top of the Pops ran from 2.15 to 3 o'clock, establishing itself as a de facto programme to put on before the Queen's Christmas message, expanding out by five minutes from 1972 and finally going back to a full hour in 1978. Although Top of the Pops finished 14 years ago, it still makes an appearance on the BBC One Christmas Day schedule. It was on at 5 to noon for an hour, between something called Zog 
and something else called the news. <laughs> <laughs> so, chaps, what would have been the ideal time for Top of the Pops on Christmas Day? I'm going for about four o'clock. You know, after your dinner's gone down and after everyone else over 30 is passed out mm. on the in an armchair. Sort of tucked in just before Disney time kind of slot you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 That might have been ideal. That might have been ideal. I mean, I think we all had to work around it, didn't we? I got used to yeah. it being at two o'clock. Um, mm. So it did become a bit of a yearly tradition. But yeah, that horrible thing that sometimes happened at Christmas where you actually had to be dragged away from it to the dinner table. Yes. Oh, horrible times, horrible times. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't have the telly on while you're having your Christmas dinner. Yeah. Well, that's wrong, man. Well, I mean, I suppose I should have been the same this year. I did Christmas dinner at mine, had the kids round and all that. And, um, you know, I suppose I did insist no tablets, no phones at the table. What the fuck am I turning into? I should have just I let them be on it. Hickler. <laughs> so today we are blessed with four hosts. In order, number one, of course, could only be Simon Bates, who has just clocked up his sixth year in the mid-morning slot and is pulling down 11 million listeners a day. He's been in the news this month for being photographed while giving Paul McCartney a cheque from the BBC for two pence. It's the royalties for one of his singles being played for a musical contribution to Radio 1's Merseyside Week earlier in the year. Alas, he's lost his other presenting job. Unbelievably, he was the host of the first ever series of Food and Drink on BBC (laughs) Two in 1982. Who the fuck knew that? And has been replaced by Henry Keller. But he's recently appeared on the Vintage Quiz, a looks familiar type show only available in the TVS region with Charlie Chester and Sharon Davis. <laughs> but rest assured, because he's making another very special guest appearance on BBC One over the Christmas period. Oh, Christmas without Simon Bates, man. <laughs> it's like. Sex without drills. Well, he, he, as we've said before about the master, you know, he's avuncular, reassuring. Don't, he does say, you know, don't worry. No matter how madcap and zany things get, he's going to keep mm. a firm hand on the rudder and ensure it doesn't yes. slip into, you know, senseless, ugly carnage. <laughs> <laughs> Your next host is Janice Long who took over from Peter Powell in the drive-time slot this March and is into her first full year as a top-of-the-props presenter and would be the only woman allowed to do the man's work of saying the names of bands and singers for the next five years on the pops. She's fun. And she's looking good in this episode, too. Yes, she's all done out as... um, Is it Dick Whittington? I think it's Dick Whittington, yeah. Yes. Yeah, or just a sort of generic principal boy. But she's very odd tonight. Isn't she? There's a definite edge to her. Oh, yeah. A little bit of uh, bit of lewdness. Yes. Oh, yeah. A few suggestive <laughs> comments, most uncharacteristic, <laughs> like she's been at the Sherry Trifle. And it's it's good to see, but yeah. it is also a little bit like your mum twerking. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's got into her, but fuck it, it's Christmas, and yeah. the 80s are not going to get any sexier, so you might as well make the most yes. of the moment. Yeah, yes. she looks good. And she, I like the sauciness she's got with a slap of my thigh outfit and stuff. Mm. And she's the person you want to be with at the party, at the Christmas yeah. party. You know, probably the person who would probably end up slagging off Simon Bates as soon as she got a chance. 
uh, when you're in the kitchen by yourself. But she looks great, and the, and the lewd comments she makes throughout it provide for me the only dadisfaction in this episode. To be honest with you, I mean, as we all know, uh, Simon Bates was not a popular man at Radio One, and according to John Peel, the first thing people did when they attended the Radio 1 Christmas party was check the seating arrangements to see how far away they were from Simon Bates. <laughs> Wasn't it John Peel and Kid Jensen and Andy Peebles who decided that they were going to beat Simon Bates up in the car park? Yes, supposedly. <laughs> then decided not to. I bet fucking Janice was in their ears, goading them on. Or leave it, he's not worth it. Yes. <laughs> the third in line dressed up as a pantomime dame is Mike Smith, who has been promoted up from the 6 to 7 a.m. pre-breakfast show slot to the lunchtime slot in May. He's also been popping up on the new BBC Breakfast Time show as an occasional presenter whenever something pop and interesting needed talking about. He's also made his acting debut this year as a radio DJ on Night Kids, a play about two homeless girls in London, which was part of the series Live from Pebble Mill. I think this partly answers the question why Mike Smith didn't want his Top of the Pops as repeated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, his widow twanky thing here. Mm. Um, It just sounds like he's been kicked in the balls, to be honest with you, this first joke that he attempts. And he is kind of using this momentary transvestitism as an excuse to aggressively sexually proposition male colleagues that he's harboured silent, latent (laughs) thoughts about. (laughs) So often the way when a massively heterosexual man dresses as a woman. Yeah, but yeah, we're still in the oh, a man in a dress, tee hee hee phase, aren't we? Are, we? we are, Culturally. but it does end up looking like they told Mike Smith it was fancy dress, <laughs> and he's the only one who turned up wearing it. Like it's like the older boys have probably got it down in their contracts that you know pale coloured sports jackets mm. only. You know, like yeah. Bates would have issued a public statement. <laughs> I feel that such costumes are not in keeping with the dignity of my status as a professional broadcaster. It's, uh, so it's like just Mike Smith just turned up and looked around and immediately yes. thought, oh, shit. And because Janice is a nice person, she'd gone and found a hat from somewhere, mm-hmm. just stuck it on top of the perfectly ordinary 1983 clothes she was wearing <laughs> before, just try and make him feel better. He's a weird one, Mike Smith, yeah. isn't he? Um, Smitty, who could forget the plaintive cry yes. of Sarah Green on Ghostwatch? Edmund's enabler. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's not so much the forgotten man of Radio 1, but he's kind of like the man who knew too much in a way. The Dr. David mm. Kelly of BBC Light Entertainment. I mean, I know he ends up a success. I know that. He ends up running flying TV, you know, hiring helicopters out. Yeah. And, and he also, of course, coined it in from the Carphone Warehouse shares that he took as payment uh, for a Carphone yes. Warehouse ad. Yeah, very lucrative in the long run. But, you know, you do sense, I always sense, perhaps this is me imagining it, but that he knew secrets, you know, and that there's a reason mm. Noel doesn't invite him back to House Party after that murder, what they'd done. I mean, um, you know, I mean, that terrible accident, of course, where all its member died. But, you know, Smith presented, didn't he, on that show, the live stuff outside. And, and I yes. think he got tarnished by that. And even though Noel had told him not to talk about it to the press, it was Noel who immediately just started hawking his fake grief and still yes. stayed hired. Oh, yes. Yeah, and, and I know that caused a massive rift between them. So Smitty's an interesting one. He... he, he 
was thoroughly conventional at the time, in a sense, and I would have appreciated him as that as a child. But ever since, yeah, it gets dark, doesn't it, with him? And the fourth host, who else? Andy Peebles, who at this point is still the second to last person to interview John Lennon before he was shot. (laughs) Actually, he's currently holding down the 7pm slot on Friday nights, presenting the Get A Pop Star to pick their favourite single show, My Top 12, on Saturday afternoons, and the evening show, Andy Peebles on Sunday, on Sundays. Presented by Andy Peebles. Yeah, well, nothing says Christmas like Andy Peebles. <laughs> they should have replaced his uh, spherical head with a Christmas pudding just for the day. Yeah. <laughs> Tip-top custard on it. Yeah, I mean, we, we've only covered Andy Peebles once so far, me, you and David Taylor. Yeah. At the time, he, you know, as David rightly pointed out, he looked like Paul Bearer and a grub in a suit. But he's beefed out a bit since then, hasn't he? Fucking hell. Well, he's had to, just to survive at Radio 1. In 1983, Andy Peebles looks like a dad who's got on stars in their eyes as 90s-era George Michael. (laughs) (laughs) He does look odd. He looks like some kind of weird mix of a sort of Garth Marenghi and and some kind of East End villain, in a way. Like some counterfeiter called Inky Peebles who could do you a really (laughs) diamond-type passport, but he also might shank you for getting the name of a Teddy Pendergrass B-side wrong. (laughs) He's he's an odd presence here. I used to like The Quiet Storm and his show. I used to like Mm. his show. His voice is great, and he's a a great creator of mood on his radio shows. But Mm. here, he's really demonstrative of how kind of... You know, good radio presenters don't necessarily make great TV presenters as well. I mean, I'm glad he's here. Yeah. But he's, to be honest with you, he's extraneous, isn't he? Uh, As to be honest, is bait. I mean, I think Janice Long and Smitty could have coped. But I guess these elder statesmen are there to reassure the very little kiddies and the old folks that it's all going to be okay. Yes. Um, Yeah. No one's going to be licking shit off anyone's boots on Christmas Day. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely no pantomime costume for Peebles. All good to God. No, no. No, no. I reckon what happened was when Smith realised he was the only one dressed up, he looked like he was going to cry and went off and kicked a big hole in his dressing room door. <laughs> and then Peebles went in and pointed a little stubby index finger right in his face and said, hey, chopper squad. I like your frock. Was it a present from your boyfriend? <laughs> and Smith just stared at the floor. He was like shamefaced. And he turned around to walk away. But then Peebles reached out, grabbed him by the shoulder and spun him back round and repeated it. He said, hey, chopper squad, I said I like your dress. Was it a present from your boyfriend? But luckily at that moment, Michael Hurl walked in. Like, or mm. bullet Hurl, as they used to call him. And uh, Peebles just, he just disappeared. Like a mouse when the light goes on. <laughs> yeah, no, no, Hurl was like, everything all right, Mike? And he was like, yes, sir, everything's fine. <laughs> but that's why, years later, Smith ended up flying Sarah Green into a tree because he, <laughs> he was in the copter and he saw a, a full moon and got a Nam-style flashback to <laughs> Peebles' uh, perfectly round face and he just glazed over and <laughs> aimed the copter straight at the ground like uh, with all along the watchtower playing in his head <laughs> Mike. <laughs> i mean all four of them together it's, it's, a, it's a very weird setup isn't it i mean gone are the days when it is 
you know, we were happy to see Noel and DLT sitting around an oversized turkey. <laughs> yeah, but they used to divvy it up, didn't they? They used to yeah. give the young people presenters sort of one episode and the old farts another episode. This is, it seems excess to requirements for all these four presenters. Yeah. Were it a, a sandwich, not that I need food analogies for everything, but if it were, I think what we have here is a kind of slightly, we've got two slightly dull doorsteps of white bread <laughs> sandwiching some kind of bold, new, exciting 80s faces. Open it's steaks. like sort of two Finder's crispy pancakes yes. in a mother's pride bed, if you like. <laughs> But I mean, the four of them together, that it's as if the accounts department have drifted off from the Christmas do and have somehow <laughs> find themselves in a nightclub for the first time in a decade. And I mean, Bates and Peebles look particularly out of place. Mm. You just see them there with, amongst all the neon and the noise and everything. And you just start thinking, oh man, something's going to go really fucking wrong here. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's odd that Peebles even wanted the gig, to be honest with you. Yeah. Whose nostrils did he threaten to split to get this spot? <laughs> That's what I want to know. I mean, this was a standard yellow hurl ploy at the time, wasn't it? Bung on as many presenters as you can. Mm. I mean, the second part of the review of 1983 would feature Peter Powell, Tommy Vance, Richard Skinner, Gary Davis and Adrian John. Proper lads night out, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I, they're trying to show the diversity on Radio 1. You know, lots of white men and one woman. But to me, it just goes to show that there are no standout Radio 1 personalities anymore. Yeah. You know, why are they sending a, a Bates and Peebles and Smith and Long to do a Travis's job? <laughs> yeah, well, there was this sort of slow fade, wasn't there, from the early 80s mm. on, where, mm. first of all, Radio 1 DJs kind of lost their status as the gods of light entertainment. And then mm. they sort of became these gentle, sweater-wearing blandies. Then they started to be phased out of presenting Top of the Pops at all. Um, yeah. And finally, the the knock on the 12-bedroom Berkshire mansion door at midnight. Yeah. In a way, it was more insulting what happened later. Right, like it's it pretty insulting yeah. to be served up Dave Lee Travis with the, <laughs> the on the understanding that you're going to like him, but yes. it was sort of worse that afterwards when it's like Radio One DJs are meant to be just like you, except mm. richer, you know, and it's yes. like, as opposed to what we grew up with, where the whole point was they weren't like you, like mm. whatever they were, <laughs> they weren't yeah. like you, and <laughs> it's like you know, on the one hand, like almost any price was worth paying to secure the downfall of those, uh, you know, failed human experiments and <laughs> turbo ship machines. But it wasn't yeah. necessarily progress because in the end, what really did for people like Bates and DLT was not their crimes against media. It was their difference. It was the fact that they were freaks and mm -hmm. their inability to fit in unobtrusively. Do you know what I mean? And so yeah. I think 1983, it's like the start of the discouragement of freaks and oddballs generally, you know. Mm. Mike fucking Smith, I ask you. <laughs> yeah. Like a, a smug lamb. <laughs> I mean, there's no Dave Lee Travis on either show, but, you know, he is still part of our Christmas in 1983. He plays the trombone on the Woolworths advert. 
the, the one with Joe Brown as a ringmaster, yeah, yeah. uh, Ruler Lenska, Susie Birchall out of Coronation Street, Daley Thompson, Lenny Bennett, Eric Bristow, and Jeff Capes. What a lineup! <laughs> yeah. You know what, though? You know what Radio 1 people would have been talking about in the playground the next day? Mm. Bates well fancies Janice. Still. Yes. <laughs> it's so blatant, man. He's got his arm around her at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, totally blatant. And, of course, you can imagine Savile with his feet up at checkers <laughs> telling Maggie Thatcher what a bunch of cunts these lot are. <laughs> Christmas afternoon, but welcome to a real panda on the top of the pump, but it's star study. Merry Christmas, I'm the principal boy, this is Michelle. Hello. I'm just so glad you would all come to the ball. Yes, Mike Smith is going to be making a dame nuisance of himself all afternoon. Let's start with a hit from 1983, back to July, here's Freeze, and I owe you. Pearl kicks in, we're hit with a cascade of gold bubbles, a Christmas 83 logo, and are confronted by Bates, Long, Smith and Peebles underneath a massive Christmas 83 logo, while a bloke in a brown jumper and a policeman's tash talks with his mate in the background. They all concentrate on getting their appalling introductory lines out, such as, this is Michelle and Mike Smith is going to be making a dame nuisance of himself. <laughs> Finally, Peebles half arsedly points at the stage and introduces the first single of the night, IOU by Freeze. Formed in London in 1978, Freeze began life as one of the best known bands in the burgeoning Brit funk movement, which emanated from southern England during the Aventis. They self funded their debut single, Keep in Touch, in 1979, and after that they signed a one shot deal with Pi Records, and the single got to number 49 in June of 1980. After the follow up, Stay failed to chart. They signed to Beggar's Banquet at the end of the year, and their next single, Southern Freeze, hit the jackpot when it got to number 8 for two weeks in March of 1981. The follow-up, Flying High, got to number 35 in May of 1981, but their next two singles flopped and they dropped off the radar for two years, trimming down to a two-piece, lead singer John Rocker and bassist Peter Mars. However, in early 1983, they linked up with the New York producer Arthur Baker, who had scored massive hits with Planet Rock for Africa Bambata and the Soul Sonic Force, and Walking on Sunshine for Rocker's Revenge. And he wrote them this single, which entered the top 40 at number 23 in June, then soared 16 places to number 7, and then slowly and methodically scaled the top 10, and eventually spent three weeks at number 2 in late July, early August held off the top by wherever I lay my hat that's my home by Paul Young and that gentlemen is fucking criminal because this especially team with a video absolutely screams the summer of 83 yeah isn't it fucking brilliant yes it is great I mean my first thought when I saw it because I don't think I'd ever seen this top of the pops appearance before it's the record that I'd mainly heard on the radio Mm. was where the fuck are they all Um, yeah 
there, you know, there's only three people on stage. I mean, it, it, it happens in this period that a lot of these funk collectives simply don't need as many people anymore. No. The same thing kind of happens to Lynx. It goes that saying for me that Southern Freeze is 10 billion times better than this. But this is a strangely prophetic record. It really does predict the 80s a lot, um, yes. a lot of what's going to happen. So even though Arthur Baker's production sounds kind of dated now, at the time, there weren't really that many electro records in the charts. And a no. lot of those Brit funksters, if you like, those Brit jazz funkers, they are looking to change electronically. When I think of what Paul Harcastle does a couple yeah. of years later, you know, and he's coming from the same kind of thing. And what, I'd, you know, listening to this, which of course is a tune that we're all really familiar with, what really mm. struck me was how eerily premonitant of, of Static and Waterman it was. How, how, mm. how sort of it predicted their kind of dominance later in the decade. There is one thing wrong with the record, and that's the spoken word bit. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, fuck me, how did that pass Arthur Baker's muster? That was not a good idea. No. But, I mean, it's it's just in your head instantly, this record. Yes. Yeah. Instantly. 1983 might be one of the best years for summer songs. I mean, Juicy Fruit, Cruel Summer, Long Hot Summer, All Night Long, the Mary Jane Girls version, Club Tropicana, Temptation, The Sun Goes Down, Waiting for a Train, Love Town, The Crown, Rocket, Get Down Saturday Night, Tour de France, Hip Hop, Bebop, Don't Stop, uh, and this. I mean, for mm. fuck's sake, I just want to mm. bong all of that onto a tape. <laughs> Find some use skulking about in the shopping precinct and just chuck it in the fucking face and tell them that my formative years pisses in the mouth of theirs. Yeah. And if they ain't got anything to play that tape on, it's their tough shit for being born in such a shithole century. <laughs> it's fucking brilliant, man. I hear this and I'm back in the summer of 83. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, like sort of as Neil alluded to, the only thing wrong with it is that because it's credited to freeze, the three E stand yeah. for extra exciting energy. Um, yeah. the, <laughs> <laughs> extra exciting electron. <laughs> yeah, but it means that you have to compare it in your head, whether you want to or not, to Southern Freeze, which yes. which does does it no favors because that is a better record. But this one doesn't have that sort of that great sullen untutored vocal that uh, yeah. Southern Freeze yeah 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 and Southern Freeze although Southern Freeze is very of its time the backing track sounds more sort of timeless because it's just like a a nice sort of uh, a nice funk track whereas this is as you say so 1983 that now it sounds slightly dated but I think that's a good thing because if you're making a pop single it's good to make it sound like the year that it comes out yeah mm, mm. rather than sort of trying to sound timeless which you just end up sounding smug you know but it is a comparison you can't make him but if this was a single by another group or even by the same people but they'd given themselves a different name like if they called themselves uh goose juice or uh you know <laughs> the bugger grips or something then you could see how great it really is despite the efforts of various people on the stage because they're not a visually appealing group. No. No, they're not, are they? No. no. They look like they're being played by Trevor and Simon. Um, yes. There's a definite resemblance there, especially the, the singer. And there's that keyboard player in, like, X-Men shades. Like, mm. he's yes. going to try and post a letter into his eyes. Uh, but, the, <laughs> yeah, the, the singer slightly spoils this record. Well, not spoils, but just 
maybe take something away from it because this is mm. not a personality record, right? This is a producer's record. Mm. Yeah, the yeah, personality yeah. that comes across here is that of Arthur Baker. But there's some producer's records which deliberately leave a big space for a big personality performance, like yeah, uh, yeah. Two Tribes, you mm. know, or You Spin Me Round, right? or like, even mm. like other like Leader of the Pack or something. It's still a producer's record, but the whole point is you have a big personality there in the middle. This one doesn't. All you have mm. to do is go in and sing it and not ruin it. Um, mm. And his actual singing is passable, but, I mean, the whole sort of camp male singer in a white singlet bit is like a foreshadowing of erasure, but without their personal likability. Mm. Yeah, he's, he's essentially dressed up as a, a male gymnast, isn't he? <laughs> All in white. With a singlet. Yeah, he could have done something on some pommel horses or something during the middle eight or whatever. <laughs> Do you reckon the keyboard player is actually Arthur Baker? No. Could be. You reckon? Arthur Baker's a hairy fucker. Yeah. Arthur right. Baker had a lot of hair. It could have been Peepoo, though. <laughs> Robo Peepoo. <laughs> but, I mean, that, that would have annoyed me. I mean, watching it, kind of, yeah, they're not a stage... They're not good on stage, in a sense. No. In that, you know... I mean, I, I shouldn't ex- I, I, I expect, you know, a documentary-like reality with this stuff. But, but you know, clearly, this is a record not played or touched by anyone on this stage, in a sense. Mm. The yeah. bass player's playing a bass line you can't hear. The keyboardist is playing these, all these two-handed chords you can't hear. He'd have been better off just using one finger, you know? And just yeah. Punching Ed Miliband on guitar there. <laughs> the one thing that I do like about the singer, despite the fact that he, yeah, he looks like Andy Bell out of Erasure if his tailor was Georgia Asda, <laughs> Andy Bellend, if you will. Um, I like the fact that he's not actually athletic enough to get away with his athletic type outfit. Um, no. Because mm. if you look, his tight white vest is just slightly hanging over the waistband of his white trousers. And there's just mm. a little bit of tip jiggle when he does that jigging about. You can pinch more than an inch. Yeah, and he's got his shoulders a bit too far back. And his his knees are pointing in opposite directions when he does his marching back and forth dance, you know. And it's... Uh, it's a hard performance to pin down or to understand what he thinks he's doing, you know. And that's mm. before you get to that talk over, which is, yeah, it, it's got to be the least appealing talk over on any <laughs> record in history. It's the way he goes, a girl, I know you care. I'll never love another. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a heroic pledge of undying love delivered like something you'd hear in a minicab office in Ghoul at 10 past three in the morning. <laughs> like after he's done it, mm. he should like keel over to one side and be sick into his girlfriend's cut pants <laughs> so they don't have to pay the driver for cleaning the upholstery. Oh, man. I know at least one person who enjoyed that that spoken bit because, I mean, this, this was the fucking anthem at my school. Mm. And uh, there was one lad... And uh, his shtick was to, to, to pick a girl he fancied out at the playground and then just drop to his knees and then bellow that bit out. <laughs> While everyone else just pissed themselves laughing. <laughs> I, suppose, I suppose it's a bit better than getting your cock out, mm, yeah. waving it. I Marginally. Suppose, but, but, but not by much. Yeah. Was he wearing a string vest, though? 
No. <laughs> Surely, it's for any kind of pop group, rule one is no vests. Yeah, unless you're in the Fun Boy 3. Oh, I was mm. just thinking, has any good mm. pop music mm. ever been made in a vest? Yeah, okay, Fun Boy 3. <laughs> uh, the drumming at live at Pompeii and this. Mm. I think that's it. <laughs> yeah. No one's done it in vest and pants, though. Yeah. That's still something for the yeah. groups of today to reach for. <laughs> Imagination could have done it in vest and pants. <laughs> could have done it in just their vests. Forget the yes. pants. But, um, I mean, yeah, the thing is, though, just to reiterate, it's a fucking genius producer's record. And, and the reason yes. it is is because when it gets to the hook, which is already going to be Velcroed into your head, um, yeah. Arthur Baker just makes everything do the hook. Like, you can hear all kinds of different things doing the hook until it's, like, drilled into your skull. Um, It's so murderously effective, this record, in getting the hook across. Yeah, yeah, absolute genius. And I'll tell you something else as well. A little glimpse into why this record is so good. I only found this out at random when I was fast-forwarding through the episode. But if you drop Mm -hmm. in just here and there and play a tiny split-second section of it, like a... Yep. You know, as you're skipping through. And you can do this with any record. Just listen to like a quick snippet, too short to hear any melody or any words. Uh, just one beat. Just mm. You get a snapshot of what your brain hears at a sort of animal level, like the frequencies and the basic mm-hmm. sort of sonic shape of the record uh, without the actual melody getting in the way, like the mechanical sound of the track. Mm-hmm. And what you normally hear when you do that is like a sort of a booming sound or a rushing sound or a ah or something like that but with this you hear like a cacophony it's this really harsh Mm. clash of tones so it's this whole record with a catchy tune and a danceable sound and it's built out of awful noise arranged really carefully like sort of metal Mm. pipes banging together sort of noise Uh, and that's why it catches your ear because it's really yeah. sweet and poppy, but the actual fabric of the sound of the track is as harsh and as aggressive as as you really got me or something, you know. Uh, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. not true of a lot of the other superficially similar dance records from this sort of time. Yeah, it's got that maximalist thing. It's like when we were talking about you spin me around. Actually, I think definitely start taking a walkman and listening to stuff like this yeah. because it's got it's got that. F- set everything to stun thing it's not really a record with space but you don't have a choice in the matter once it's on this is getting in your head and it's going to stay there the rest of your life yeah. it's late 1983 but it's got to be said that in this episode the zoo wankerishness which could have been absolutely jacked up to the maximum it's it's been damped down quite a bit hasn't it neil yeah, it has a bit. They're, they're, they're not foregrounded as much, for starters. Mm. And they're, also... They are there. They are there, but they're not foregrounded. They're not, all of them, doing the same shitty-ass strolling moves that they've done for fucking mm. years. And actually, some of the music in this episode... I'm not saying it, it was made for Zoo, but, but <laughs> that, that it, it kind of suits, in a sense, some of their styles a little bit better. They're not; they're, mm. It just doesn't seem so artificial, but mainly you can't see their fucking faces. You can't yes. see their expressions, and that's what's key. I mean, one of the maddening things about Zoo was always the idiot joy on their faces. Um, yes. You can't see that. They're mainly in silhouette. I mean, they do have dancers for this performance, but they're not Zoo wankers, are they? They're actually break dancers who know what they're on with. Yeah, popping and locking an and all of that. Yeah, yeah, and they're doing it well. They're doing it well. Nothing massively spectacular, but by late nineteen eighty three standards, it's like, oh fucking hell, look at them. Yeah, 
Look at them now, all spinning on the back and everything. Isn't it good? Yeah. First year, I mean, I seem to recall 83 being the first year that sort of those street sounds comps come out. Yes. Um, so yeah, definitely the year of that. And yeah, it was great that it, it was on top of the pops. And there is quite a bit throughout the show, actually, of that, which is, which is good mm. to see. I mean, this is 1983 is the year that Jeffrey Daniel came out on his own for uh, A Night to Remember which is one of the definitive top of the pops performances. Yeah, really the only thing wrong with this is that they didn't show the video instead. It would have been much better. Yeah. I mean because that video like mm. the record is a nice reminder of the days when each individual year had its very own distinct character. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm. And I discovered from the comments underneath that video on YouTube that apparently everyone always thought the lyrics to this song went A E A E I O U and sometimes why. <laughs> Which, of course, would have made a lot more sense. So Freeze would follow up IOU with another collaboration with Arthur Baker, Pop Goes My Love, and it got to number 26 in October. But they closed out the year with Love's Gonna Get You, only getting to number 80 last month. John Rocker left the band in 1984, and they split up a year later. However, IOU enjoyed a second life when it was used in the 1984 hip-hop film Beat Street and a remix version was put out in 1987 when it got to number 23 for two weeks in January of that year. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to All Rather Mysterious, the podcast that aims to unlock the mysteries of the past with the key of fact. My name is John Rain. My name is Eleanor Morton. My name is David Reed. Please join us as we present to you mysteries that have baffled the world. You had any noises? What about um, a door creaking? Uh, you, don't, uh, you don't have to do it. That weird kadook that yeah, lights lots- going off makes for some reason in film. <laughs> All Rather Mysterious. Freeze and IOU from 1983, and 1983 has really been a renaissance year for Michael Jackson. With Billie Jean, he had a number one hit, and it was fantastic, but the video was something else. Bates, in his... Oh, hang on, is that the doorbell, Taylor? Do you want to get it? Oh, can't you get it? Oh, fucking hell, Simon, come on in, mate. How are you? Hello, ho, ho. Nadwale Flowen. <laughs> All right. Yeah, how you doing? Happy new uh, whatever it is, Simon. I can't believe you're sitting around watching an old Top of the Pops. I, I know, mean, it's uh, terrible, isn't it? Isn't that just a bit of a busman's holiday, a bit much like the day job? <laughs> but but <laughs> why not, in, eh? Get your sent a sherry or so. You appear to be dressed like Ian Asprey, Simon. What's going on there? Yeah, um, I kind of uh, slept in my costume from last night in which I was a... a um, an online uh, interactive event, which let me just say that is my idea of hell. But at least it was <laughs> online. You know those sort of immersive 
narrative theatre things or like mm. murder mystery things that sometimes you get roped into quite often as a sort of team building exercise. Yeah. It was a friend's birthday and I had to take part in this kind of like, you know, murder mystery thing. And uh, the theme was conspiracy, cult or corporate. Mm. So obviously uh, only one word jumped out at me there. <laughs> and uh, you know me, I didn't have to dig too deep in my wardrobe to find um, a sort of frilly musketeer shirt, some tight white jeans and a a, a black wig and a paisley headband and a fuckload of rosary beads. So uh, yeah, that that was the the photo that delighted all my Facebook friends last night. <laughs> Can I share it with the pop crazy youngsters? Yeah, go ahead. Yay! <laughs> so Simon, Christmas nineteen eighty three. Yeah. Any memories? It's funny. Um, we've literally discussed the episode three days before this one. Um, uh, Neil and, and I um, did it. I think episode 16? the week before. Yeah, yeah. The week before this one, uh, yeah, we, yeah. we've already done that episode. Yeah, and it was, uh, it was Here Comes Jism. Here Comes Jism, the, the episode yes. that gave us that immortal um, chart music <laughs> meme. Yeah, so I've already talked about where I was at in my life quite a lot. I even re-listened yeah. to it just to check. Let the Pop uh, Craze Youngsters go back to that episode. Then go find one. all that. So, you know, yeah, I, I talked a lot about how I gained acceptance through the, 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 the twin-pronged attack of a cardigan and being funny. Um, mm. But um, the other thing that, that um, <laughs> I sort of remember that I didn't mention that time was just... My my knowledge of music in, in itself became a thing to make me popular. I remember because yeah. I, I was just such a sort of music geek and that gave me a, a huge amount of respect at that time. Rather than, you know, it, it could have made me kind of laughing stuff. What's wrong with this guy? But um, uh, I, yeah, at that time it wouldn't. No, I mean, I was known for this encyclopedic knowledge. People used to try and catch me out at school. I, I remember this one uh, kid coming up to me and saying, all right then, and, and he thought he had a really good one here. All right, so, all right then, I bet you can't name the lead singer of Echo and the Bunnymen. <laughs> <laughs> and this was, I think, possibly the Bunnymen hadn't quite started having hits yet, but they were quite mm. a known band. And, you know, he thought that was a really obscure one. And quick as a flash, I played Ian McCulloch, and he just walked oh, away like... smack. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And he walked away sort of like shaking his head like, you know, like this guy fucking hell. Yeah. <laughs> it was so easy. So yeah, um, cardigans, jokes and knowing about music uh, meant that I could relax a bit more. That's what you want out of life, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, me- it meant I could walk home from school without wondering who's going to jump out at me, uh, you know, w- wondering what, what foe may assail me on the walk. Things, <laughs> things had relaxed a little bit by then. So it was, it was quite a nice year. Yeah. Good. Good. And this is a fucking corking episode, isn't it? Uh, sorry, Al, I don't know what you mean. You mean this episode that I've just walked into your living room and you happen to have oh, on? Oh, yeah, of course, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been good so far, even though there's only been one song. Yeah, I, I, I remember it exactly the episode you mean. It's almost as if I watched it yesterday. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's still a time when um, what's in the charts and my own tastes haven't parted ways um, mm. significantly. So, you know... Um, my own taste was a real scattering of things without any particular central focus, like ABC, Culture Club style, Council, Dexy's Big Country, Madness yeah. still hanging on in there. I had a brief Joe, yeah. brief Joe Boxer's phase, wearing, wearing a, a string vest. Um, uh, <laughs> th- things like The Smiths and The Cure were just starting to appear on my radar, but I hadn't gone alternative yet. I was very much a, a smash hits kid, and 1983 is very much a smash hits year, and I, I think... That, that that sort of vibrancy of pop does come over in this Christmas episode. Also, I hate it when people try and retrospectively cool wash their tastes. So I'm going to admit here mm. that 
two of my most played albums of 1983 were Labour of Love by UB40 and No mm. Parley by Paul Young. Yes. Um, but both albums which people don't tend to say, oh yeah, of course, of course I was into No mm. Parley and Labour of Love. But, you know, can't change the facts. That's what was on my turntables at that time. And um, yeah, there's, there's plenty of stuff in this TOTP that... Um, having fought my usual battle with my elder relatives to even get to see it on Christmas Day because they thought yeah. we should just sit around maybe playing charades, telling stories of old, and maybe uh, maybe watching The Queen. That's the only thing we were allowed to watch was The Queen. Um, Talking about the fucking good old days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. You'd want to do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, it, exactly. So, so um, having won that battle, um, I... I, I would have thought it was it was worth the fight because there's enough de- decent stuff on here to enjoy. So let's continue then. Bates in his supply teacher jacket and a tinselly lay surrounded by the kids and a scattering of members of City Farm tells us that it's been a renaissance year for the next artist and that we really need to check out the video. It's Billie Jean by Michael Jackson. We've covered Michael Jackson many a time and oft on chart music, and this single was the follow-up to The Girl Is Mine, the duet with Paul McCartney, which got to number three in November of 1982. According to the biographer J. Randy Tarabarella, it's based on a woman who sent Jackson a string of letters throughout 1981, claiming that Jackson was the father of one of her twins, culminating in her sending a photo of her, a gun, and a letter telling him to kill himself at a particular date and time, and that she'd do the same to the baby and herself, so they could all be together in the afterlife. So Jackson naturally did what all of us would and hung the picture up in his family's dining room. (laughs) According to Jackson, he was so obsessed by the song that while it was going through his head on the way to sessions for Thriller, he didn't notice that his car had caught fire. (laughs) It was put out as a second single off Thriller in January of this year and in the first week of March it became the number one in America where it stayed for seven weeks and then became his second solo number one in the UK after she's out of my life when it deposed too shy by Kajagoo. Seeing as Michael is about to have his Christmas dinner underneath a photo of his stalker in America, we get to see the video directed by Steve Barron, who did the videos for Strange Town, When You're Young and Going Underground for the Jam, Time for Action by Secret Affair. Ant Music by Adam and the Ants, Made of Orleans for OMD, Stepping Out by Joe Jackson, Love Action and Don't You Want Me by The Human League, Promised You a Miracle for Simple Minds, It Ain't What You Do, It's The Way That You Do It for The Fun Boy 3 and Banana Rama, and Africa by Toto. Fucking hell, there's a CV. Yeah. Or a show reel, if you will. I mean, some of those are sort of bog standard, doing the job videos, but Take On Me by Aha. That is a solid gold classic. Just very innovative, obviously. Oh, he did that later on, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, fucking hell, it still shocks me that this, this fucking song was not the first thing we heard off Thriller. And he went with The Girl Is Mine with Paul McCartney. It's weird, but I suppose in a way, um, uh, sort of hooking himself onto Paul McCartney's legend status was Mm. a a signal, uh, a sign really of of how, almost how low um, Jackson's own... Um, reputation had fallen at that time because obviously we're talking about an era when things moved so quickly that three years was an eternity yeah and 
Um, I mean, previously, like everyone else, uh, well, maybe not everyone else, but I'd, I'd loved Off the Wall, um, especially the title track. But that felt like a million years ago, by yeah. a, by late '82. So he comes back doing a duet with McCartney, and it's almost like, oh yeah, remember him? Um, and, mm. and certainly, so this is Billy Jean, um, you know, second single off the album, but his first kind of solo single if you like yes there's no guarantee it was going to be number one just because it was michael jackson do you know what i mean no um, not at, all. At, at that time it wasn't a banker it wasn't even nailed on that it would be a hit at all plenty of mm. stars of the disco era were now struggling even to crack the top 40 and we're talking about people who yes. had huge hits in 78 79 so everything was kind of up for grabs and um you know thriller had only come out a couple of months before this uh Single came out. It, they brought it out in January, which is always yeah. always the trick, isn't it, to get a cheap number one? Yeah, you know what I mean, because there's hardly anything else about. So CBS thought, look, you know, we need to get this guy a big hit. Um, let's just bounce it out there where there's very little competition, mm. and it worked. And it's 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 weird to think of that now because this became his biggest selling single ever, and it's you know one of the defining tunes of his career and of the 1980s yeah but it is worth remembering that the success of this track which now seems so obvious was not obvious at that Mm. time i mean i Um, remember being absolutely shocked when it got to number one yeah and another thing as well is that around about this time when the style council started up i joined the fan club the the torch society and they'd send out kind of like newslettery things every now and then and I remember reading it and it's saying, oh, you know, congratulations to Michael Jackson to get into number one with Billie Jean or something like that. Yeah. And I was absolutely shocked that Paul Weller liked this song. Right, yeah, yeah. That, and that was the kind of like barometer for me at the time. Well, if Paul Weller don't like it, I don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is surprising though, you're right. thing is, um, he did seem kind of an old-fashioned figure. Um, something from a previous yeah. age when, when he turns up. Simon Bates goes on about what a great video this is. And it's probably just hindsight. But you look at it now and think, is it? Is it really? No. I mean, they, they threw they threw a lot of money at it, I guess, by that era's standards. But it's very mm. corny. There's very corny sort of detective mystery angle to it. You know, Jacko being pursued by a private detective slash paparazzo who who sets off a Polaroid camera, but guess what? When the picture comes out, Jacko's not in it and all that. But um, it, it, it does seem um, the sort of pr- production values that you would now expect bare minimum from a shiny floored ITV Saturday evening dance routine, you know? Yeah. Um, it's yeah. got a big cat in it, fair enough. Any Any 80s <laughs> video with a big cat is a winner as far as I'm concerned. You've got you've got um you got a panther in Hall and Oates Man Eater and uh, Ad- yes. Adam and the Ants Prince Charming of course in which course. Uh, Diana Dawes waves a wand and a normal cat turns into a panther and uh, that's kind of what happens here you've got a cat <laughs> it jumps behind um a dustbin the sort of dustbin that you only see in sort of American fiction, like in... Um, yeah, where Top uh, Cat in, lives. Top Cat, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and it comes out the other side and it's a fucking tiger. Or at first, is it a tiger or is it like a sort of ocelot or something a bit smaller? <laughs> then then finally at the very end is it's huge fucking cat. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit underwhelming through 
modern eyes, perhaps. Yeah. But his yeah. But at the time, I mean, Bates can tell us all he wants to to watch the video. But yeah. if you're a pop crazed youngster in 1983, you could just shut your eyes and you could see virtually every frame of this in your head. Well, because yeah. it got played a lot. Yeah. That's the thing. And, it, and at the time, it was oh my god, look how glossy and mad this is. It's interesting to me how memorable every second of this video is to me um, yeah. and not just this video almost out of everything in this episode because I didn't have a VHS recorder I didn't even know anyone who had one at that time or maybe one kid um, so mm. you know you had to sort of, you maybe see these videos three or four times if you watched every music program and you happened to catch them if you were lucky yeah and you just they just sort of imprinted themselves on on your retina um, it's, it's 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 really interesting how whether that's a sign of the era or the impressionable age that that we were at at that time, yeah. but yeah, Jacko seems almost like a kind of a figure from the golden age of MGM musicals or something like that. There's a yes. bit of a kind of Bob Hope or um, Gene Kelly kind of feel to him. Even his trousers, right? <laughs> He's got his trousers. They're a bit. Um, Half masks. They're a bit, uh, you know, mm. so to, to to show the white socks and, and to show off his footwork. But they've also got a very slight flare, though, a very slight kick flare yeah. on them. And you know me, you know me. I was yes. the Matthew Hopkins of flares. I was the Saxon Finder <laughs> General at my school. Yes, Saxon Finder General <laughs> going around my school, shaming kids <laughs> who had a slight flare on their trousers. And um, I would definitely have, have uh, shamed Jacko for his trousers had he been at my school. If he'd been at my school, of mm. course, there would have been all kinds of eyebrows raised for all sorts of reasons. But let's not go into that. But um, but if if I if one of my friends had expressed even a liking for Michael Jackson, that would have made them a flared person in my mind. I'm going ah, ah, flares. You like Michael Jackson, and. <laughs> and, and you know, I've, I've been on about what what he looks like and so on, and what the video looks like, and this obviously him stepping on a paving stone and it lights up was like oh, was, was mind amazing. blowing. Was mind blowing yeah. at the time. We can't we can't take that away from it. That was so fucking cool. But th- there was something. It, it, it was like nightmare, wasn't it? Like a kids right, yeah, game yeah. show. I suppose the precursor for something like that would have been the lit up dance floor in Saturday Night Fever. But that was yeah. just making random patterns. That wasn't responding. Yeah to the dancer no. and where they put their feet, which is just, yeah. To, to, to this day, you watch it and think, okay, that is pretty fly. That is, mm. And his dancing, even though it is that old school Gene Kelly kind of dancing, it yeah. is brilliant. You've, you've got to say, you know, it's. I don't think I valued dancing as an art much in those days. I just thought, oh, whatever, no. you know, you know, all right, stop showing off. But, it, <laughs> but it, it is pretty fucking incredible, some of the stuff he does. But again, old-fashioned, because we've just seen, the, we've just seen Freeze doing IOU yes. with breakdancing in it. So yeah. straight after that, you've got this guy doing normal, traditional, fancy footwork, and, and like an old-fashioned hoofer, and it, it does seem mm. dated. And in a way, that, that applies to the record as well. So, all right, Quincy Jones production, you can't really argue with that written by Jacko no. himself but there's something very it's very hi-hatty it's very trebly there's not a lot of bass mm. or oomph to it as a dance record obviously it's danceable but um it's it's a move on from disco it's not you know that this isn't a record mm. you could have imagined sitting on off the wall or any album of that era no but it doesn't really point the way forward either it's hard to think of much that was influenced by Billy Jean. It's one of these weird anomalies in pop that it's one of the biggest records of the decade. Yeah. But it's kind of a 
sort of a full stop or a question mark on, on, on its own, I think. What Bates actually says at the start is the record is fantastic, but the video is something else. So he might not have actually have been bigging it up because <laughs> video really isn't that fantastic. And I like the cats in it, but yeah, you're right. It probably was pioneering at the time, but it just pioneered yeah. and broke ground for a lot of other videos with stylized city sets and coloured lighting and stuff. But the mm. bit I do like is when he's going up the stairs and there's some yeah. graffiti on the yes. wall behind him yes. which says Viz Rules. Which yeah, is hang pretty on, does hip it, for 1983, but he oh, right. was a very early adopter. Right. He yeah. liked Skinhead and yes. uh, Paul Wicker, the tall vicar. <laughs> yeah. He used to get it from the, the Gosforth Hotel on Salters Road. Yeah, old Trent House. The, what I think is so amazing about this record is that it seems to be driven by inexplicable magic. Because when you look at all the component parts, it shouldn't be quite this good. Because... It's not got that much of a tune. The beat is quite pedestrian compared to a lot mm. of off the wall. And yet it is mind-blowingly great. It's like some interdimensional being has blown on it and created some unearthly internal illumination. And I'm tempted to suggest that that interdimensional being was called Quincy Jones, which is not to play down the contribution of the the bad king of pop but to me this is another producer's record that atmosphere yeah. of tension and brooding anxiety is so strong and so beautifully controlled by the rhythm track and it just glows and seethes in a manner that's so subtle that you can listen to it a thousand times and you can either dissolve into the darkness or just groove on it and dance and and be happy and mm. When people gripe about commercialism in pop music, which in itself is a hilarious missing of the point, I would always direct them to this record, which wouldn't be this record if it was allowed to run free and if its entire sound and structure were not so carefully constructed to create a worldwide radio smash hit. Um, it's the discipline and concision uh, that's instilled by having to think about this and having to think about other people basically, and balance your creativity and your innovation with a basic popular appeal. It's the main driver of greatness in popular music, um, and it's why this is what it is. It isn't jazz. It's simultaneously something easier and harder. It isn't funk. Mm. It's something simultaneously easier and harder and better and worse. Um, and I think the key to understanding this record how it actually works as a piece of music is its deep similarity to, or similarities to I Heard It Through the Grapevine, which yeah. musically mm. does precisely the same thing that this record does. And I don't know whether that's conscious or a coincidence, but there are uncanny similarities, which go beyond the, you know, there's like a brooding bass line and very similar string sections. Uh, and I think if you study those similarities it can teach anyone a lot about arrangement and production like however much they already knew you know um although i sometimes wonder if the the air of darkness and paranoia on billy jean is helped perhaps subliminally at least for british people by the almost exact resemblance between that string shiver that appears out of nowhere in the chorus 
and the electronic, for want of a better word, jingle on the Protect and Survive adverts with Patrick no. Allen. <laughs> right. You know the ones that would wrap your nan yes. in polythene and leave her in a crater? Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm 100% sure that's a coincidence, but it is quite a creepy one. I thought we were going to come to nuclear paranoia a little bit later in the episode, but um, yeah, no, it, it rears it its head. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really good comparison with um, uh, Heard It Through Grapevine. Hadn't thought of that mm. before. Um, uh, obviously, I'm, I'm now going to ruin Taylor's really good Viz joke by talking about what it really says uh, oh. in the graffiti on the stairwell, which is the Wiz rules. Oh. The Wiz rules, which, of course, a reference to the 1978 adaptation of The Wizard of Oz, yeah. in which Michael Jackson plays the scarecrow now the thing with the whiz is that jackson got fairly good reviews himself um and he said doing that film was the greatest experience of his life to that point but critics right. hated it yeah. so that this little thing in the video i i don't think it's too much of a stretch to think where it says whiz rules it's not some random bit of graffiti that it is you know he's basically saying screw you to the critics yeah can you imagine if the whiz came out now can you imagine the response on <laughs> social media and uh, the comment sections of tabloid newspapers well, it's like the wizard of oz but there's one big difference <laughs> yeah not sure that would go down too well with certain sectors of society no. yeah yeah fuck them yeah i'll tell you what it's always bothered me about thriller right like thriller obviously is a great album it's where the 80s really got started it's yeah. it's not anticipating the 80s or pointing the way towards anything. It just is that thing. It's already mm. started, and every part is moving th- freely. It's like, here you are. Here is the decade you're living in. Um, but, and look, I, honestly, I don't know whether what I'm saying here is shit and ancient, hacky student stand-up material. Right, like mocking the grammar in Live and Let Die. But I've never seen anyone point this out. So tell me, this film genre that he's referencing in the song Thriller with zombies Mm. and monsters and evil things lurking in the moonlight, that's not a thriller, that's a horror. (laughs) It's a completely different genre. His second favourite genre, but the first is not legally available in the United States. (laughs) It's like if he'd done a song about men in black bowler hats bumping into each other and falling off stepladders and landing arse first in barrels of water on scratchy black and white film. And then the chorus went, it's a sci-fi. Yeah. It's just no. (laughs) Satire. Someone should have said, Mr. Tempest. Fair enough, yeah. If anything, it's the Billy... It's the Billie Jean video that's more like a thrill, or even that's more of a film noir yeah, kind, of, kind yeah. of thing going on. Yeah. I'm speaking of titles. Did he not think there was a slight issue with the title here? I well, there's yeah. one very famous person called Billie Jean who yeah. was even more unlikely to have had Michael Jackson's child than he was to have fathered it. <laughs> and the song's narrative is completely dependent on you never making that connection in your head, mm. lest you big bird it forever, right? I mean, it's, it's like straight if away I came for me. out with a, a song called Nigella. And I went, no, it's just, yeah. it's just about a girl called Nigella yeah. who can't cook. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, at the time... Um, well, I, he I certainly did Dirty thought that. Diana as well, remember? <laughs> well, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh yeah, yeah, it's just any sort of diner. Yeah, um Billie Jean <laughs> King totally. Um that that's what I thought straight away when this when this record came out. It's like why why is he singing about Billie Jean King? What the fuck? Cuz nobody had heard of any other Billie Jeans. Yeah. And I guess to no. this day I still haven't really. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. And dodging accusations about his private life of course would become a theme yes. throughout his later career. Get him in early. Yeah. This must be the first time that um, sex has read its head in a Michael Jackson song. I guess so, yeah. I don't want to look too deep into Ben. Oh, God. <laughs> That's not what he said. <laughs> Ironically, when Michael Jackson did eventually father children of his own, the um, sort of suspicion of, of the, uh, the paternity suit in the court of public opinion, let's say, was mm. was that they weren't his kids, you know? Yeah. So, of course, ten years yeah. after this, he could have had the DNA test live on Jerry Springer rather than going all the trouble of uh, doing a song about it. Yes. This video, of course, is hugely significant in terms of MTV as well. Cause, of course, um, yes. They they wouldn't show it. I mean, they just weren't showing black artists. No. And um, Walter Yetnikoff, the president of CBS, had to bully them into playing it quite rightly uh into playing mm. it he was going to go public and you know tell the world that they weren't playing this this guy because he's, he's a he's a black artist um and he was going to pull all of cbs's artists off mtv um which mm. you know uh, uh david bowie of course um yes. called called out mtv's racist policies that's amazing that clip that, is, isn't oh, it that on rocket. the channel itself yeah yeah it's or a tin so- can as he would call it <laughs> <laughs> well done well done uh, <laughs> um you know so so eventually uh mtv put it on heavy rotation the first 52 i think videos on mtv had no black artists in at all and the 53rd no. was the specials who you know like a yeah. mixed um <laughs> So and then then they went back to just God. like white stuff over and over. So yeah, I mean they they definitely Devil had, had a case were to the answer. first black people on MTV then. I, I believe so. Yeah. Fucking hell. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever hear the quote from the head of MTV when someone asked him about this? They said, "Why uh-huh. why are you not playing any any videos by black artists?" And he said, uh, "We're not here to cater to minority audiences." Fucking hell. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much the line that the interviewer gives David Bowie in mm. that interview. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know... Because um, no white people ever like black music. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, the number of people who like Billie Jean by Michael Jackson, it's a very small minority <laughs> yes. of music fans. Now, Michael Jackson, with this song, he essentially became the, 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 the one go-to person. If ever anyone came up to you on the playground and said, what music are you into then? Who are you into? What are you? And you didn't really know. And you just go, oh, well, Michael Jackson. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Mm. Did you go to a mixed school, though? I went to an all-boys school. Yes. Right, there we go. At my school, nobody would admit to being into Michael Jackson. Absolutely no way. It was just something about that testosterone atmosphere that um, anything mm. less heterosexual than the jam was frowned upon, yes. really. <laughs> yeah, the style cancer. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. No, let's not go there, man. Yeah. <laughs> So, Billie Jean spent only one week at number one, knocked off the top spot by a single we're going to see later on. The follow-up beat it, got to number three for two weeks in April, and he'd have two more top ten hits with Wannabe starting something and Thriller in the UK, as well as getting to number two with Say, 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 his duet with Paul McCartney, which featured on Macca's Pipes of Peace LP. 
and Steve Barron went on to direct Mike Bassett, England manager, in 2001. who's being bothered by that blonde zoo wanker who was next to Bates last time, tells us about someone else who has bestraddled the world of pop this year like a white-shod colossus. It's shaking Stevens and cry just a little bit. But hang on a second. That very strange energy in the intro, right? Mm. Janice is standing there and they've got this really sort of more glamorous and very smug-looking woman to stand next to mm. her with one long satin-gloved fist on a jutting hip, smirking mm. right into Janice's face from less than <laughs> a foot away, as if to say, oh, I see you managed to get to C&A before it closed. So it's <laughs> like a sort of mean girl's vibe, right? She wasn't giving that to Simon Bates. Yeah, I know. But then as soon as Janice introduces Shaky, this woman just immediately melts into a big grin and throws mm. her arms in the air in celebration. D- defuses <laughs> yeah. a potentially uncomfortable situation, which is what Shaking Stevens is all about, bringing people together. Having women next to Janice, I-, I don't know. I don't know how to feel about that. It wasn't at all sisterly, was it? No. Put a man there. That What they ought to do is put a man next to her, showing her the same deference as respect as that woman showed Simon Bates. Yeah. Don't you think? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's 1983, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Come on, top of the pops. Give Janice some cock. <laughs> she, she's not going to want for cock, though, in this. Or <laughs> pussy, to be fair. I mean, I didn't... I, this whole thing that you're saying, I didn't even notice. I, didn't, I only had yeah. eyes for Janice. And mm. and her thighs. Yeah, <laughs> rarely seen. She looks great. She's so saucy. Mm. I just and and the thing is, she does look kind of like when there's like two people in fancy dress who like didn't get the memo. You know, that's kind of the look, but also it's fine because yeah. they Simon are... Bates and Andy Peebles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically they didn't get any of the memos at all for many years and that was not by accident. You know, and, and nor were they invited to this thing. So it is. You know, that's. That's the party that I would want to go to is the one that Janice was going to and and, and Mike Smith. You know, that's where the party's but at. But what pantomime costume would you put Simon Bates and Andy Peebles in? I, I... Two back ends of a horse. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> or, I mean, you know, pantomime is Cinderella. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> we covered Comrade Shaky last fucking episode. God! And this... Mm-hmm. His 22nd solo single in the UK was the follow-up to It's Late, his cover of the Ricky Nelson song, which got to number 11 in August. 
It's been a quiet year by shaky standards, but no longer. Because this single, the lead cut from his new LP, The Bop Won't Stop, which was written by Bob Heatler, who gave the world Japanese boy by Anika, came out in early November, immediately launched itself upon the charts, and spent two weeks at number three at the end of that month. It's still in the charts, actually, currently residing at number 24, and here he is in the studio, making the first of three appearances on the telly over the Christmas period. Oh, tidings of heterosexual comfort and joy, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Christmas wouldn't be Christmas without an ageing hack putting his white (laughs) shoes all over the turkey. Uh, He did actually do that once, didn't he? Uh, there's a um, because he's got a, a new yes. anthology out. There was an interview uh, that he did with, uh, in the Guardian, um, and uh, he was at he did he once did. Um, I have more respect for him after reading this. Actually, he was mm. playing a company party and That's furious, right. furious at the tepid response. It says yes. he reputedly climbed onto one of the dining tables, feet in food, and bellowed, "Scream! Damn you! You would scream for Tom Jones. Yes. You can scream for me." <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, after that I, I would actually That's from his biography, isn't it, that was written by his old manager Yeah, that's right, yeah, he's, it's an amazing quote I'm assuming there are many other amazing quotes in Yeah, there. it's a very good read, that is yeah, yeah. If you're into the Welsh rock and roll scene of the early 70s It's an essential textbook But basically a lot of shaking his mates line about in bands with beer spilling everywhere And the, the, the occasional shag <laughs> The occasional shag So there's some story in there that was mentioned in that Guardian bit I, I don't know if you get an answer um, to whether or not he snogged noted novelist Edna O'Brien at yes, well, hang on, what at the birthday party of Kenneth Tynan's daughter? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, like you know the whole like what well, you do it for the anecdote thing or like it's like you don't even need that's just like you don't need to know any more than that, do you? No, no, no. <laughs> That's that's the best shaky story I've ever heard, I think. He pulled Edna O'Brien. <laughs> yes. This is the thing Just on the first ever question time. There's there's more yes. there's sort of considering how sort of pedestrian his over is, there's there's some interesting shit in the margins there, you know. Yeah. I mean I, I I don't have I fundamentally don't get Shaking Stevens because he's kind of just some bloke. He's done incredibly well and he's got he was the biggest singles artist of the mm. entire decade and spent longer in the charts than fucking Michael Jackson and Madonna but yeah. I I think I guess the I guess the thing is that he's sort of he's a relatable pop star isn't he he's a yeah. reachable and tr- sort of knowable in in that way like that's one of the types of pop star or one of the types of celebrity is the sort of mm. you know next door wave over the garden fence kind of kind of pops yes he's a traditional seaside holiday isn't he i don't mean that he's end of the pier i just mean that he's a static caravan he's fish and chips he's a stroll along the prom (laughs) he's uh, a stick of rock you know that's kind of what this is i mean this is not a great song he's not selling it very hard either he seems a bit tired but um i've got to give props to the outfit that is a really good outfit that's a a very good um, iteration of yeah. 
monochrome black shirt and trousers yeah white shoes black strides white coat black shirt white tie black mic white shoes white shoes sweet mike barrett <laughs> there's one in every town <laughs> yeah exactly um but yeah i would it would have been it would have been enhanced by him if they'd had like a little trestle table of uh, like a, a, a sad buffet yes. and he'd like got up there and kicked some polyvance <laughs> yeah. about it would have been you know the thing is though it, it would be a a good outfit except unfortunately he's he's committed the ultimate faux pas of turning up to the top of the pops christmas special wearing almost the same outfit as simon bates yeah um that's yeah and looking a bit like mike reed oh, actually yeah, yeah. doesn't he look like mike reed a bit he does now him yes, and mike reed oh, were the same shit. age or almost oh, the same age look it's like have you ever seen him in the same room <laughs> Ugh. Any day of the week, I'd rather see Shaking Stevens Hove interview mm. than, than Mike Reed, but that's that's by the by. Yeah, I mean by Shaky standards, this song's is it's practically futurist, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's got synths on it and everything. Is it? What's going on, Shaker? Well, he's trying to move into the eighties with that yes. electronic beat, but even then, it's like a sort of nineteen fifties electronic. It's like, like hello, I am rock and rolling robot. Watch me do the <laughs> twist. <laughs> <laughs> like with plastic concertina bits joining the limbs onto mm. the central dustbin. Metal Michael. Mm. <laughs> That's the switch it's meant to flip, isn't it? But it's it's not it's not leaning on it very hard. I mean there's not like a it's not like a proper sort of rockabilly shuffle thing. It's just sort of bum jer, bum jer. And you know, the yeah. kind of there's sort of some some key changes at at, at particular moments but it doesn't really go anywhere it doesn't say an awful lot it's a pop it's meant to be like a winsome pop song about being sad and it's meant to make you feel that particular mm. sort of twinkly feeling of of uh you know melancholy uh 50s pop yeah but uh, but moderately sad yeah not too sad just one to a single tear mm. rolling you know rolling yeah, cinematically a, a little bit it. of what makes you miserable does you good yeah <laughs> is what he's saying yeah. here isn't it <laughs> it's true that he's only sad in a natural way and he enjoys sometimes feeling this way. <laughs> From those Shaking Stevens Apprestatin EP. <laughs> the Cafe Formica. Yes. <laughs> but it is ruined by the synths, this record. Not because they're mm. synths in themselves, but because it's got the nastiest, most tasteless early 80s synth keyboard sound. There's someone vamping mm. all the way through it on this, this like ice rink <laughs> like, organ like, sound. Like John Shuckleworth. Yeah, or keyboard cat, like in lieu of any audible guitar. And it's fucking brutal. It's like a nasty Yamaha preset. It sounds like a Cyberman's kazoo. And it's (laughs) it's practically the only melodic element of the backing track. Um, And because there's not much to this song, it sort Mm. of has to sound appealing. And it doesn't, thanks to keyboard cat pounding away with his stiffly outstretched (laughs) paws. But it's 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 kind of pointless digging too deep into individual shaky works because yeah. really these are all extracts from a continuous performance. Yeah. Like mm. this fades down, but he doesn't stop bopping. And three months later, they just fade him back up again for three minutes. <laughs> Call it a different song. And there's yeah. his latest million seller. It's, I mean, I thought... But, <laughs> When I, when I first watched this episode, I thought, no, I'm all shaken out <laughs> now. I haven't got anything left. <laughs> no, but no. 
there may actually be an infinite number of observations waiting to be yeah. made about shaking Stephen. The churning engine overheating at this point as he steadfastly refuses to move from the spot. <laughs> yeah, like he's got his heels caught in a tram line and he can't get them out. And it's like your own heartbeat. It's as boring and samey as your own heartbeat, <laughs> which you never think about until it stops. It's like the dignity of labour because something on this show had to follow Billy Jean, right? And yeah. Shaky yes. is the one artiste who is completely unruffled by that prospect because it's yes. it's just another day's labour for him, you know, at the coal yeah. face of self-contained sexual rock and roll. Yeah, and I I love that about him because he has no self-importance and he has no need to communicate anything. No, or to it's be just, part. Here I am again. Yeah, shaking for you. Yeah, mama. yeah, I know. yeah. It's just food on the table and. One more hooligan off the street. <laughs> yeah, that must be part of the appeal is just the sheer reliability of him. Is yeah. you know he is he is completely you you know it's it's a crazy world, but that's one thing that you can you can uh, you can rely on is mm. is shaking Stevens. I tell you what, he makes me think of. He's like one of those boxers who only exists to lose. You know, uh, mm. the blokes they wheel in to fight serious boxers who are on their way up, so yeah. they can put together all, all the jobbers in wrestling. Is that the same thing? Yeah, because you know our boxers like. When they get to title fights, and it's like he's unbeaten for 20 yeah. fights. And it's because they brought in these cauliflower ear motherfuckers to mm. fight him. You know, oh. you meet them and they're like, yeah, I fought Klitschko. I fought Joshua in a pub in Forest Gate. And it's <laughs> like, well, did you win? No, I was neither able nor allowed to win. Mm. Um, and it's shaky. I don't know, he reminds me of that a bit. He's always happy to, to pad out the undercard you know, yeah. and make up the numbers. Cause you, and you have to have him there. It can't all be solid greatness because you would get bored mm. and there would be no winners and losers, you know. Well, this and, is Top of the Pops doing something for the oldens, aren't they, in this, in this episode? Because he's supposed to be a family show, remember? Yes, but also, even in the context of Top of the Pops, if Wham and Frankie goes to Hollywood uh, to seem as thrilling as they should, you've got to have a shaky... You know, and it mm. takes a certain amount of skill and yeah. guts to play that role. You know, just standing there yeah. every three months, getting the crap punched out of your eyeballs by Michael Jackson and and yes. freeze. You know, it's it's a it's a tough but a noble way to make a living. Yeah. Well, it is noble. It's not like um, you know, much as I don't have a lot of feeling for him, it's he's not pathetic. You know, there is a dignity there. There no. is, you know, and mm, he's, mm. he is now, you know, singing kind of socially distanced one song gigs at Euston for secondary royals, you know, <laughs> and oh, and having, yes. a, having a really, and having a nice time and going, oh, that was great. Comrade Shaker consorting with the royal family, uh, that ain't right. Quizzling <laughs> Stevens. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, uh, I'm. I'm pleased every interview I read with him now just he he sounds sounds like a stand up guy and he's had a he's had mm. a great career and people love him and he's yeah. massive in Poland and apparently so he's got this 19 CD anthology out now and like a singles <gasps> singles collection. Yeah, I know this because every single time I go on YouTube I get adverts for it targeted no yeah, doubt. I'm afraid <laughs> this but you know but people people rag on Shaky for a perceived lack of imagination but do you know what he's called his singles compilation? Yeah, it's called Singled, Singled Out. out. Do you get it? Do you get it? Oh. No, say yes. Do you, do you get it? Say yes. Say yes. 
Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and apparently he signed so many copies of, uh, he went to the, the record company and uh, signed so many copies of, of his uh, of his mighty works that until his hand bled. Oh. <laughs> what a pro. That is, it's, that, that's almost the quintessential shaky story, isn't it? Mm. He just did a mundane thing until his hand bled, oh. and you just you've got to hand it to him. You, you do, in mm. fact, have to have to drippingly hand it to him. <laughs> but yeah, just my my final word on uh, Shaky is that uh, my bloke's mate used to be his sound tech, uh, like about ten years ago. Right, had to do his monitors, mm-hmm. um, and the whole of the road crew signed a contract that you had to call him Shaky. Oh, yes! <laughs> That's how he had to be addressed. Not Mr. Shakes, not Lord Shakington, not Mr. Stevens, not his shakeliness, but Shaky. Oh, wow. So it's weird that because it's such a weird combination of like arrogance and humility. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're going to, please call me Shaky, but hey, call me Shaky. But like, it's, <laughs> it's sign here. And like, imagine the look you'd get if you, if I don't know, Mister Shaking. <laughs> well, we saw what happened to Richard Madeley when he called him. Yes, right? yes. Uh, although, he, to be fair, Shaky had spent the afternoon with status quo and yes. the contents <laughs> yes. of Rick Parfit's inside jacket pocket. Uh, uh, <laughs> Allegedly, Shaky's new LP can't stop the bolt, but it may have been coated down by the capitalist imperious melody maker. But at the end of the cassette version of the bot won't stop something quite remarkable happens doesn't it telly shaky grasps yes. the white heat of technology <laughs> you get this message from comrade shaker hi this is shaky if you've got a sinclair spectrum 48k computer why don't you try my game the program follows shortly if you haven't please fast forward to the end of the tape so that you can listen to the album again the shaky game. Yes. For the, if you've got a Spectrum. If you've got a Sinclair Spectrum 48K computer. Mm. Yeah, I think I can tell you right now who hasn't got one. Yes. Um, it's a the worst computer game of all time. Um, the story is the programmers had never programmed a game before. No. And never did again. No. And were given about three weeks to do it. Um, <laughs> it's about vampires and bats mm. chasing you which is a deeply unshaky like thing. No. It's, no. it's as if they'd it's like they'd written the Bauhaus game. But Bauhaus <laughs> didn't want it. So they just offered it to Shake. So they, but they tried to bolt it on to Shake in Stevens mm. by like okay, the the first thing that happens is a text screen comes up and it says, "Hi, I'm Shaky." It's late. So even Clive Sinclair has to address him by Shaker. <laughs> It's late, close to midnight, mm-hmm. which is, not many people realise if you bought the cassette of Thriller, it had a game yeah, at the yeah. end on it for the Vic 20 where you had to fix the shingles and find time to fix the floor <laughs> before, before you got savaged by the hot dog. Um, is, what happens in, in Shaky's game is you have to reach the old house oh. of vampires. <laughs> <laughs> before he says... You have to help me reach the old house of vampires before my fuel runs out. Mm. Watch out for the flying bats. They will drive you crazy. Um, (laughs) Of course, when you actually see it, 
it makes the infamously pointless and headachey Paul McCartney give my regards to Broad Street game look like <laughs> Red Dead Redemption 2. It's just some lines in a square maze around a house, which is supposed to be this old house, <laughs> although it looks like a Barrett new build. Yes. And there's a little racing car going around it which is you driving shaky to the old house mm. um and some bat shaped things moving around and you go bleep 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 yes. until you get no to the house. no soundtrack or anything there is sound but not not a really nasty version of this old house or something like in that minder game where they did i could be so good for you that's fucking brilliant. Yes, that, the is. version of I could be so good for you in that Minder game is the best version <laughs> ever of the two. It's the best version yeah. ever. Um, no, what you're hearing is not gently pasteurised rockabilly music. No. It's this hideous, it crest file frequency assault that attacks <laughs> the alpha rhythms of your brain and uh, it makes you go out and assassinate someone without knowing you're doing it, you know. And... Uh, so you you get to the old house in your car with Shaky, which takes about nine seconds. Mm. Um, if you're good. And then a a sort of teletext level rendering of Shaky's face appears on the screen <laughs> with a, a speech bubble saying, you're at the old house. And that's the end of the game. Yes. And then it just starts again a bit faster. Or... If on the way you collide with one of the the bats, you get the same shaky face, but this time the speech bubble says, oh dear, a bat bit you. (laughs) In an eerie foreshadowing of the mess we're all in right now. Oh, (laughs) Christ. You have died of bat bite. I just, I don't understand more than anything else why shaky wants to go to the old house if it's full Mm. of vampires. Yeah. Where's the appeal? He doesn't like the vampire bats, but he likes the vampires. You know, I mean, it's a, yeah. It, I would say that that's a good explanation of why you ain't gonna need this old house no longer. No, not where you want to, unless it is Shaken Stevens vampire killer, and he's got like a massive <laughs> jeweled crucifix, <laughs> and he's just gonna you know cut a swathe through these. Uh, swooning black caped figures i don't know but that sounds like a better game than the one that we're playing mm. um i don't know why you needed a sinclair spectrum 4 8k computer to play it because no. looks like it would have run just as well on a kettle <laughs> and i don't know why they think the kind of person who would have a sinclair spectrum 48k in 1983 would want to buy a shaking stevens tape it's, it's 4 8k out Oh, sorry, 4-8K. Do apologise. <laughs> I just imagine shaking Stephen's core audience, ignoring all that, and then all of a sudden it goes... <laughs> and thinking, what? Oh, fucking hell, what's going on with Shaker? <laughs> but I do have to say, that track is David Stubbs' favourite shaking Stephen's track. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote a chapter about it in his book, I think. <laughs> It just sounds like the uh, it's like the golf game that Bart Simpson gets that is yes. a terrific disappointment. <laughs> yeah. And like imagine it trying to get the car to go faster or, or like try and get yourself bitten by a bat just to see what happens. Like you have selected power drive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and speaking of Simpsons, uh, Shaky's spoken intro is I've never heard anything more like Krusty <laughs> the Clown doing the voice yes. for the Krusty doll. It's just like, Hi, I'm Shaky. <laughs> really want a drink 
um, yes. is, is is the game. <laughs> no, allegedly. <laughs> but later that night on ITV, Comrade Shaky dropped the czar bomber of heterosexual rock and roll when he unveiled his follow-up single, A Rocking Good Way, with none other than Bonnie Tyler for an unprecedented show of Welsh force on Jimmy Tarbuck's Christmas All-Stars. That single would be released a mere five days from today and eventually got to number five for two weeks in January. But it wouldn't be the last time Comrade Shaky made himself available to the proletariat over Christmas because on Boxing Day he would be the special guest of the Keith Harris Christmas party. <laughs> mingling with Orville... Listen to this list, man. Mingling with Orville, Cuddles... Dippy the Dinosaur, Stu Francis, The Green Goddess, Mike Reed, John Craven, Fern Britton, Janet Ellis, Floella Benjamin, outside of the dustbin, Ian McCaskill, Patrick Moore, and Simon Bates. And whoever else was knocking around the BBC bar at the time. I always think with Keith Harris, he never really found his role in life <laughs> until he changed his name to Bend Over. <laughs> <laughs> And the party's getting properly started now. Simon's over there on the decks pumping out some proper pricey bangers. Sarah and Neil have nipped to the bear off before it shuts, and me and Taylor have got the urge to flap the fish. So, you nip out the back garden for a bit, come and rejoin us for part three of this massive episode of Chart Music. Don't set the neighbours off, don't piss up against my back wall, and stay pop-crazed! Chart music. It's an S Pod thing. The podcast revisiting S Club 7's insane TV show. Yeah, I can't imagine anyone's binge watch this, anyone who's not on drugs. <laughs> Thank you for bringing this into my life. Uh, it was honestly <laughs> truly appalling. Guests helped me analyse the show in more detail than anyone ever asked for. It feels weird to me to say the phrase sex object in a show that <laughs> was aimed at six-year-olds. Do you think Do you think this is one of the problems with this show is that seven is too much? It's an S Pod thing from Great Big Owl.